Thank you, Heavenly Father, for how you do speak in so many ways and on so many levels from a passage of scripture that many of us have been familiar with since we were children in Sunday school. So I pray that you will today open our eyes and hearts to see new truths in a very familiar book and that our hearts will rejoice with what you show us because there is no way I can do this alone without your spirit who is our true teacher whenever we open your word. And Father, I do thank you for a story that we can all relate to in many ways, a story that never grows old with each succeeding generation because all people, young and old, worldwide, enjoy a great love story, especially when it ends well, as the book of Ruth does. And even though there are no supernatural miracles to be found in this book, as there were so many in our two previous studies on Genesis and Exodus, Yet your providence is so vividly on display in and through the lives of Boaz and Naomi and Ruth that I pray it will bring each of us to again marvel at how your infinite wisdom and power with your absolute holiness and justice mingle together with your great grace and your mercy to work all things together to fulfill the purposes and the plans that you predetermined to fulfill from before the beginning of time is incredible. It is beyond human comprehension how mighty are your ways and your thoughts, how deep is your love, how real are your mercies, but they truly are all on display in this small Old Testament book, so much so that they actually present your majesty even more awesomely than by way of supernatural miracles. And Father, I would ask that although we are squeezing the entire narrative of the book of Ruth into one Bible study session, I ask that you will be pleased with what we glean from it and that you will be glorified and worshiped in the hearts of everyone listening, that we will collectively be awed at the depth and the width of your word, which is so living and so powerful, it can even pierce the hardest of hearts and may your spirit do just that this morning as he takes your divinely breathed account about a long ago true story and uses it to convict us where needful, to convince us of the truth of your person and your savior, and to bring us to our knees in renewed adoration of him for having willingly accepted the responsibility to be our kinsman redeemer by paying our redemption price with his own precious blood. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Our outline, as you can see above, and I hope it stays cloudy so you can see the PowerPoint pictures a little bit better. But our outline, we will be looking at, these all start with F. If you've been around a long time, you know I like to do same letters with outlines. So we're going to look at famine and funerals. Fidelity and Faith, Part 3, Fields and Feet. Seems like in this Bible study lately, we just cannot get away from feet. Remember the dugong shoes from our tabernacle study? If you weren't here, you're looking at me like I'm nuts, but you'll have to listen to that study. But we're going to get back into the subject of feet in the study of Ruth. And then finally, we'll close up 
with family and future. First of all, let me discuss the setting for the book. The book of Ruth is a small, I hope all of you got a chance to read through it before you came here because I won't have time to do that or Terry will have to announce that I spoke for two hours in the first session. Uh, it takes, it's 85 verses, only four chapters. It's a small book. It's tucked in between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel, I think it is. And um, it takes about 20 minutes to read through it. Um, it is one of only two books in scripture named for a woman. The other book is Esther. Very good. Interestingly, the book of Ruth is about a young Gentile woman marrying an older Jewish man. Whereas Esther is a book about a uh, young Jewish woman marrying an older Gentile man. So they kind of flip there. Ruth is the only book in the Old Testament named for a non-Jewish woman. Actually, it's the only book in the Old Testament named for a Gentile. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a Gentile. Now, there is a book in the New Testament that is named for a Gentile, but he's not a woman. He's a man. And what is his name? Luke. Exactly. Luke. Now, um, Esther was not the author of the book of Esther. Ruth was not the author of the book of Ruth. Does anybody want to take a guess who they think, now you can't be dogmatic about this, but who they think authored the book of Esther? Esther. Malachi? I think you mean Mordecai. <laughs> Mordecai. They believe Mordecai wrote the book of Esther, which would make sense. Uh, who do they think wrote the book of Ruth? Samuel, very good. Who said that? You were there yesterday. You're cheating. <laughs> you did do a study on Ruth. Um, can't be dogmatic, but the Jewish, Jewish tradition and the Jewish Talmud do credit Samuel for writing the book of Ruth. Now, you all probably know that the book presents a beautiful love story. Don't we all love a love story? Yes. <laughs> women love to cry but I love love stories that have a happy ending um, and it is a beautiful love story with a happy ending and, and we know it's about Ruth and Boaz but have you ever realized there is also in this book a profoundly beautiful second love story between Naomi and Ruth which is kind of unusual because we're talking about a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law and, you know, they make jokes about that. But this is no joking matter. These two women loved each other. And, uh, and it even is a little more complicated because Naomi was Jewish and her son married a non-Jew, a Moabite. So that could have been, you know, a lot of friction there, too. But it doesn't turn out that way. And I am blessed. I have a wonderful, took my son 40 years to finally find her. But I used to pray all those 40 years, <laughs> even when he was born, I was praying for his wife, that I would have a Naomi-Ruth relationship with my daughter-in-law, and I do. And I am so blessed for that. I am so thankful for that. So this is a beautiful love story um, in, in several ways. 
Now, we do find, too, that there are three main characters in the book, uh, and their backgrounds, their characteristics, their interactions with each other were used by God to present a panorama of future history from the time that the book was written, which was in the days of the judges of Israel, to where we are today. Are you kidding? The book of Ruth prophetically takes us to where we are today. Yes, it does. And it even goes beyond where we are today into the future. It goes into um, the, the end of the church age, which I believe is where we are today, and the wedding of Christ and his church and the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will take place during the millennial kingdom. The little book of Ruth is full of prophecy, huge prophecy that expands all that time. The three main characters are Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Boaz is equally important to both women because he serves as the goel, which is the Hebrew word for kinsman, redeemer, for both of them. He redeems the land for the older Jewish woman, Naomi, and he redeems and marries the younger Gentile woman, who, of course, is Ruth. Now, we're going to discuss more about this prophetic aspect of this book in our next session, but I wanted to give you just a little glimpse of the typological dimension of this book so that as I am making our way through the actual story, you may begin to see, your little spiritual eyes, eyes will be open to see how there is so much more to this book than you may have known previously. It is truly an amazing prophetic prophecy. Boaz, whose name means strong or strength, is a very strong type picture of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Naomi, whose name means pleasant, changed her name to Mara, which means bitter, but at the end of the story, she's pleasant again. She represents Israel. Naomi pictures Israel. Ruth, of course, the Gentile daughter-in-law, and compassionate friend of Naomi. Why do I say compassionate friend? Because that's what Ruth means. If your name is Ruth, your name means in Hebrew, compassionate friend. She becomes, of course, the bride of Boaz, and she is a picture of the church. So just keep all that in mind as we go through the basic story. And then we'll tie it all together in the next session. Ruth is a story of conversion a Gentile girl outside of the covenant of God and outside the land of Israel and God's covenant with Israel comes to belief in Yahweh, the God of Israel, the true God of the universe. So it's a story of conversion. It's also a wonderful story of redemption and restoration. It is, as I just mentioned, a story that has a lot of prophecy in it a prophetic preview of the New Testament Christian doctrine of Christ redeeming his church 
and then his eventual redemption and restoration of Israel. It's also a great book for highlighting God's providence. People generally think that miracles are the greatest way for God to prove himself. I had a grandmother who said, if I could only see a miracle, then I would believe what you're telling me about God. People want miracles, don't they? And miracles are great and wonderful. I mean, no doubt about it, I would have loved to have seen the Red Sea split, wouldn't you? <laughs> I would have loved to have seen Moses hit a rock and out came living water. I would love to see manna falling from heaven. I would have loved to have seen Lazarus come out of his grave after four days dead. All kinds of things. I would love to have been there. The resurrection morning? Um, but there is uh, even a better, <laughs> something better than miracles. Because miracles have a way of fading and then people want more and more. Talk about that in a minute. But uh, there are unseen miracles of God that go on all the time. There are no miracles, I think I said that in my prayer, there are no miracles in this book. No obvious visual miracles. But there are miracles in this book that you know, come under the title of God's providence. A miracle is when God uses, um, or he intervenes, I should say, he intervenes in natural events and circumstances and people's choices, etc., you know, and, and he um, produces something supernatural. Like when you strike a rock, you don't expect water to come out of it, right? So he intervenes in the natural to produce something supernatural. Um, but his, his providence is when he uses natural events and circumstances and uh, orchestrates all of it to produce what he has already purposed and planned from the beginning. Providence is not the same as, as his sovereignty. His sovereignty is when he actually, um, it, it is his right and his power to do all that he decides to do because he is all-powerful, almighty God. So that's his sovereign right to do it. Whereas providence is him actually working all things together to do, as I said, what he already predetermined to do. It is like basically Romans 8.28, how he works all things together for good to produce, you know, his, to give himself glory and for our ultimate good. It is also put together that with uh, Genesis 50.20, the Genesis 50.20 principle, where he can even take what man meant for evil or Satan meant for evil, and he can use that to accomplish his own ends and purposes. A pro providence is really um, him orchestrating natural experiences to produce what he planned all along. How he does that is beyond human comprehension. Because, you know, I would think that if I chose this way, there'd be a different outcome than if I chose that way. But he knew I would choose this way, and so he already had orchestrated all of that out because he knows the end from the beginning to fulfill the end plan for my life. You get it? So in other words, God never has an, oh, no, now what am I going to do moment. She messed everything up. <laughs> he never has a plan B because his plan A always gets fulfilled. And the, Ruth, the book of Ruth is an example of God's providence. And I'd almost rather have this than the miracles. 
because this is so much more amazing. Well, with this book, we do not actually depart from our Old Testament Christology study. We simply jump forward a little bit in time. When we stopped our last study, we ended with the tabernacle. And for once in Israel's wilderness journey, she actually was very faithful to obey God precisely. He told her how he wanted everything built in the tabernacle, and she did it. She built it per his blueprint specifications. And then, of course, he dwelt with her. Israel could see God dwelling above the tabernacle proper above the Ark of the Covenant. She could see his glory. Isn't that something? I mean, that's a miracle. And then he would lead her by that pillar of fire and pillar of cloud so she could see him above the tabernacle when it was set up, and then he would lead her. Well, so after the tabernacle is established, it took nine months, then they proceed on their way because God starts leading them. He leads them right to the edge of the promised land. And what happens? Can you believe it? They doubt, they start, they doubt him. They say, oh, we just can't do it. There are giants in the land, and we're just a bunch of little grass. We can't conquer it. We cannot do it. And their lack of faith, after everything they had seen him do, with the splitting of the Red Sea and the manna and the rock and the water and all the miracles when he threw the tree in and made the bitter water sweet, all of that, and they still doubted him. So what was the outcome? Well, they had to wander around in the Sinai wilderness for another 39 years, total of 40. And then finally, finally, under the leadership of Joshua, who was another wonderful type of Christ, she entered into the land flowing with milk and honey. And very soon she was in the period of her history known as the Judges. She had a series of 12 God-appointed judges during this time. These were flawed <laughs> warrior deliverers that were appointed by God. One was actually a woman. What was her name? Deborah. Some of the more famous ones were Deborah, Othniel, Ehud, um, Gideon, Jephthah. Remember him? Made a terrible vow. And Samson. Everybody knows about Samson. Israel had no king at this time because she didn't need. All the other nations had kings. She didn't have a king. Why? Who was to be her king? God was her king, right? She didn't need a king. And God was her authority. But here we go with the miracle thing. As time passed and the memories of the miracles of how they got out of the, uh, Egypt, you know, the ten plagues, the ten plague miracle faded from the, even the conquest of Canaan. The Battle of Jericho and how the walls came a-tumbling down. All of those miracles faded with each new generation. See, that's the problem with miracles. The first generation knows how wonderful it is. The second generation say, yeah, well, if you say so, Mom. <laughs> and then the third generation, maybe it didn't even happen. You know, so that's what happens with miracles. And... Um, so it, it, everything faded and the people grew lax in keeping God's covenant promises, their obligations to him. Remember when he said, if you'll obey me, I'll bless you. And if you don't, I'll have to send <laughs> problems on you. And they said, oh, all that you say we will do. 
Unfortunately, that didn't happen. The tribal leaders and the spiritual leaders generally began to, well, they generally do in any country, begin to reflect the increasingly weak faith of the people that they lead. You know, I think all of us probably lament quite a bit over the leaders in our own nation today. If you don't, you probably should be. <laughs> and the leaders in most nations today. But the fact is, they were providentially put in their offices by who? God. And they are what the people deserve. A nation's leaders often reflect the moral and spiritual values of the people they rule. Especially is this true in democracies. We're much like the time of the judges, by the way. In the time of the judges, Israel slipped into what we call a repetitive cyclical pattern. A sin cycle. First of all, it starts with rebellion. She would rebel against God. She would turn to other gods and to immorality and all kinds of bad things. Go apostate. And then the second phase would be retribution. God had said back in Deuteronomy 28 that if Israel obeyed him, she'd be blessed. But if she rebelled, what would he do? She would have to suffer his retribution. And he said that he would either have her tormented by enemies like the Philistines or the Amalekites or the Amorites, the Midianites, all kinds of enemies and that, you know, they were always battling somebody. Um, or he would send a famine on the land. And then after suffering his retribution for a while, Israel would finally come to her senses and would enter stage three, which was repentance. She would repent, and God, in his great mercy and grace, through one of his judge, warrior, flawed <laughs> deliverers, would help bring about a time of restitution or restoration. Israel would be restored. But guess what? After not too many years, what would she do again? Slip back into rebelling and disobeying. And the whole cycle would start all over again. Every nation does the same thing. Has America done the same thing? What stage do you think we're in in the sin cycle? Yes, we're in retribution. So what stage should we go into? Repentance big time, especially God's people. If my people, which are called by my name, will repent. That's what we need to be doing for our nation is repenting. And in his great grace, there maybe could be another revival before we go home to be with him. I wish I could see a revival in this nation. I would love to experience that, wouldn't you all? Yes. yes. So overall, this about 400-year-long period of time, period of the judges, was a very dark, very dark time for Israel due to her own fault. I mean, it was all her own fault. <laughs> there was great apostasy, widespread immorality, idolatry, many wars going on. Eight times in the book of Judges, we read the words that Israel did evil. 
Now, how many times, if God was writing a book about America, how many times do you think that book would say America did evil? I don't know. I don't know. I'm afraid it would be maybe more than eight times. Like today, it was a time of relativism. It was a time of existentialism. You know what existentialism is? That I can't ever say that word. It's when each person creates his own purposes and his own meaning for his life. I was watching, I, I like to watch Ray Comfort. Um, he's got a YouTube series, I think it's called Living Waters, and he, he's, he goes on the streets and he witnesses to just people passing by. He says, may I have a minute to speak with you? And he, and he begins to witness to them. And he is, oh, if you watch him, you learn all kinds of great ways to lead a conversation to the Lord. It's, it's just really, it's good. It's very good. He's, he's excellent at that. But he was interviewing, or he stopped this one young boy, and he was, wanted to talk to him. And uh, he asked the boy about his purpose for life, and the boy said, oh, I have searched for many years. Of course, he was young, so it couldn't have been that many years. But <laughs> he said, I finally found my meaning, the meaning for my existence. And Ray Comfort said, well, what is it? It's to love myself. Oh, my. But that is where we are with so many people. You know, the think of the scripture is absolutely the opposite, right? <laughs> Deny yourself. Love God supremely. But that's existentialism. And it's a, it was a day, the judges was a day of humanism. It was relativism because the book ends with this sentence. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's, that's relativism. Well, what might be right for you is not right for me. What's truth for you is not truth for me. Everything is relative. So, very much like today, that's where Israel was when the book of Ruth was written. That's the setting. Now let's start looking. And you might want to follow along. I'll give you verses so I can, you can see where I am periodically, all right? But we're going to start with chapter 1. And the first part of our outline, which is famine and funerals. The story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz took place, as I said, in the book of Judges. But it was near the end of the book of Judges. Israel was in stage 2 of her sin cycle the time of God's retribution for her sin. This time, instead of sending an enemy, such as the Philistines, he sent a famine on the land. The good news about the book of Ruth is, as I told you, it has a happy ending. It has a happy ending, a love story that ends with, and they lived happily ever after even though it begins with a devastatingly deserved famine, it does end with a delightful, devoted family. It opens with funerals, but it ends with a wedding and a new birth, a new birth. <laughs> and new births always end well. So in that long ago time of chaos, hardship, idolatry and immorality, there lived in Bethlehem Ephrata, a small Jewish family of four. There was daddy, mommy, and two little boys. They left their village of fruitful, of the fruitful house of bread. That's what Bethlehem Ephrata means in Hebrew, 
Ephrata, fruitful house of bread, Bethlehem. They left the fruitful house of bread and the promised land flowing with milk and honey because of the God-sent famine. And actually, think about it. The famine was inconsistent with the Hebrew meaning of where they were living because they were living in the fruitful house of bread in the land of Judea, which means praise, and in the land of flowing with milk and honey. Now, what should they have done in the retribution stage instead of trying to escape the famine? What should they have done? Yes, I heard it. They should have been repenting. They should have repented. But the father of this Bethlehem family, his name was Elimelech. Uh, that's a hard name to pronounce, too. His name meant God is my king. Now, that's a good name. How would you like to go around with that as your name? Hello, how are you? What is your name? My name is God is my king. Wow, that's a great name. So why didn't you look to him as your king when the famine struck? <laughs> he didn't. Rather than trusting God as his king in both times of plenty and times of famine, he left. He left the fruitful house of bread in the land of praise to seek shelter in a Gentile nation called Moab, where the people worshipped God, small g, such as Baal and Chemosh. Now, Chemosh was a horrible god. All gods, of course, are demonic, and they're, they're the figment of man's own imagination. So Chemosh was a god full of angry, anger. He, he was very angry at people. He didn't like people. How would you like if we had a god like that? He didn't like people. So the only way to appease his anger against people was for them to sacrifice their own children. <gasps> oh. I think we are in the day where many people are sacrificing at the altar of Chemosh. Do you not? Can you believe America has finally, has gotten to the state, not finally, but has gotten to the stage where they're even talking about infanticide, killing a baby outside of the womb? Talk about did evil, did evil, did evil. No wonder we're under God's retribution right now. I know does make you wonder. So for Elimelech to forsake Israel not only demonstrated his weak faith in his God, it also was disobedient. Joshua chapter 23 said the Israelites were not to live among the heathens in their lands. But Elimelech looked at the famine through the eyes of his flesh, not through the eyes of faith. He obviously did not believe that God was potent enough of a sovereign king to sufficiently provide for his subjects. In fact, verse 21 tells us, if you look ahead at verse 21, that when Elimelech took his wife Naomi and their two sons from Bethlehem, it says they went out full. Do you know what that means? The famine had not diminished the family's food or their wealth. It wasn't like he said, Oh, the little boys are going to starve to death if we don't get out of here. They went out full. They're not even starving or close to starving. But Elimelech feared the famine could result in loss for him. So he left. And ironically, it would have been far better if he had re remained in Bethlehem, even during a famine, 
than to live in Moab in a time of plenty. Other men of Bethlehem remained there during the famine, and they did, they did well, like Boaz, because by the time Naomi returns, Boaz, who's probably a cousin of Elimelech, he stayed there. The other people stayed there. None of them looked as raggedy as Naomi when she returned. And they had their families and their wealth, so he should have stayed in the promised land. If you remember now, the Moabites were the descendants of Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew who went to live in Sodom. And uh, he, unfortunately, nobody knew he was a saved man until the New Testament. Do you know that? If you write a story, you would not think he was a saved man. You know, it was his Mrs. Lot who turned to a pillar of salt. Anyway, he had an incestuous relationship with both of his daughters, and the oldest daughter um, produced the Moabites. They descended from Lot through his incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. They, remember, did not allow Israel to pass through their land. They were not friends of Israel. They also um, did not help Israel with food or water in a time of need. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 23. And they even hired a prophet for profit named Balaam. Really strange guy because he had a conversation with his own donkey. <laughs> and the donkey spoke back. <laughs> the donkey was smarter than him. But anyway, they hired Balaam to curse Israel. And I love that story because every time he opened his mouth to curse Israel, what happened? God has such a great sense of humor. Out would come a blessing on Israel instead of a curse. But those were the Moabites. And as I said, they, they were idolaters. Uh, they worshipped Chemosh and etc. So living with them was not a good way for Elimelech to strengthen his own faith in God or the faith of your, his family. You know, when a man moves somewhere, he ought to think about his family, what's going to be best for his children and his wife. Sometimes they don't. Even if he only planned to remain in Moab for a short time, it didn't turn out that way. Well, actually, it did for him. <laughs> no, it didn't, because he was buried there. So <laughs> he's probably still there. Uh, we don't exactly know how long they were in Moab before Daddy died, but I don't think it was very long. He died. The very thing he tried to avoid by leaving Bethlehem, which was lost, he ended up experiencing he who will try to save his life will what? Lose it. He went to Moab seeking to find his life, but all he found was a grave. The move to Moab, of course, brought great sorrow to his family, especially to his wife, Naomi, whose name means pleasant, but things were not pleasant at all for her when she became a widow. But they only got worse. Because Elimelech failed to trust in God, both of his sons married Moabite women, which violated Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 23.3. Now, Malon, who was the older son, and whose name means, you ready for this? Puny or weakling. Now, my husband got upset with me yesterday because he said he thought I was making fun of people. I'm not. 
I just think, I just think the names are really interesting. I love, I love numbers in the Bible, and I love names, and there is a lot of significance in the names, okay? So I didn't make this up. I'm not making fun of Malon just because he was called Puny. And, his, and he married Ruth, okay? Puny married Ruth. Then Kilion, and the C-H is pronounced with a K, Kilian, the younger son, whose name means pining or wailing, so you've got puny and pining, or, or weakling and wailing, or you've got sicko and crybaby. <laughs> okay, so pining married Orpah. And the Lord did not bless either one of those marriages with children. In fact, almost immediately after we read about their marriages, look at verse 4. That's when they get married. And then look at verse 5. That's when they have their funeral. So no wonder <laughs> puny and pining didn't have any children. They didn't live very long. I mean, they get married in verse 4 and they die in verse 5. From earliest times, Jewish commentators on the book of Ruth say that the deaths of all three members of Naomi's family were the result of divine judgment. Would you say that? Yeah. Well, he's in charge of everything. You know, he knows the day we're going to die. So, yes, this was, uh, I hope they knew God and they're in heaven, but they all, they, the three of them did die. Naomi was the only one of the original four members of her family to survive the great time of sorrow in Moab. And they did not die of the famine, did they? I'm not sure what they died from, probably from being puny, but... <laughs> now, although Naomi had left, she had left Israel in what condition? Full. It says they left full. Now she's empty. She's not only a woman, and women, you know, as a patriarchal culture, they didn't have many rights like men. Um, it's not like she could, she couldn't even own land. Um, and she couldn't make a very good living. She was a woman. She was an older woman. She was a widow woman. Now she's bereft of her two sons who could have provided for her. And she has no grandchildren. And she's poor. They went through all their money. Emptiness and sorrow often come into the lives of believers who leave the path of God's will to go their own way. If you doubt that, just ask Mr. Prodigal's son. Wound up in a pig pen, didn't he? But the sorrow, the pain, and the tragic loss of three-fourths of Naomi's family were providentially used by the Lord to get Naomi finally, after 10 years in Moab, to return to Bethlehem. Her decade, and it sounds to me like her husband and her sons died pretty early after they moved, in the fact that the wives didn't have any kids. So I think she stayed too long in Moab. She could have gone back earlier. But maybe it was her pride. She didn't want to go back and face everybody who remained in Bethlehem. And, you know, she comes back without anybody. And so I don't know. But her decade of heartaches and loss in Moab made her receptive 
to hearing good news. And God will do that a lot of times in people's lives, won't he? Give troubles and trials. So finally you're down so low, the only way to look is up. And you're receptive. Your ears are open to hear good news when you hear it. There was someone in Moab who was proclaiming good news. Hmm. That's, that's like the gospel, okay? And what was the good news? It was that the Lord had visited Israel with bread. It His gift of bread. It really sounds like the gospel. The gospel of Ruth, we could call it. Um, and so she was receptive. It says that she arose because of what she heard. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of, of the word of God. <laughs> and she went, it says, on the way. This is in verses 6 and 7. Did I tell you that? Verses 6 and 7. It says she went on the way. And we know Christ is the way. And she, to return unto the land of Judah. Once she determined to go the way of return to the land of praise, then we are introduced to the second main character of this story, Ruth, the widow of Sicko, the oldest son, Malon. Now she, Ruth, becomes compassionate friend. That's her name, okay? She becomes the prominent um, character in the narrative right now because although initially both daughters-in-law Started out with Naomi. She's decided to go back to the fruitful house of bread. They're both going to go with her. Orpah, whose name means what? Droopy neck. I'm sorry if your neck droops, but I don't know why her mother would have called her droopy neck. Stand up straight, girl. Stop drooping your neck. I have a daughter-in-law. Her hair is oh, so heavy and so long that she goes, she just the opposite of droopy neck. She's like this all the time. I said, Noel, just cut your hair. It's going to give you, when you're my age, your neck is going to kill you. But that hair is, is down past her bottom and so thick you could make four wigs out of it. I've never seen such hair in my life. But anyway, she has, doesn't have a droopy neck. <laughs> but oh, I always want to call her Oprah. Or Pa. Um, she was going to go initially, but she was too easily turned back to her family and to better prospects for uh, remarriage. And sadly, she also went back to her false gods. That's the worst part. So let's move on now. Second part of our outline, fidelity and faith. This is where another God-sent test of life enters this story. I always look at life as a series of tests, and it is. As soon as you get past one test, God sends another test. They had just had the famine test, and they flunked that one, didn't they? Because they left. They got an F, Elimelech at least got an F minus on the famine test. Then there was the funeral test, and I think, you know, because both girls did remain with Naomi, I guess I'd give them an A on the funeral test. But now we learn of the faithfulness test, and it was Naomi herself who administered the faithfulness test. I don't know if she was aware of this, but she's the one who administered it to her two widowed Moabite daughters-in-law. She besought them to return to their mother's homes where they might find rest, which means rest in the security of a marriage. You know, your, you girls are young, just go back and, and find a nice Moabite 
man and have, have rest in security under him, have re find rest in having children. That's what she's talking about. Um, now some people, actually quite a few people, do criticize Naomi, saying that it was wrong for her to try to persuade her daughters-in-law not to leave their families or their poten potential for future marriage prospects and their Moabite gods. So they criticize her in this. But she likely realized the importance for them to make their own deliberate decisions in this matter. Perhaps she had had no choice when Elimelech said, we're going, pack up, we're leaving, out of here. And so she knew how important it was for them to make up their own minds. And it was important for these two women to count the cost of following her into a foreign land, another land, away from everything familiar to them, away from their family, their customs, their friends, their gods. And I don't criticize Naomi for this because the Lord Jesus also tested those who said they wanted to follow him because he wanted disciples who were wholeheartedly sold out to do that. Uh, willing to leave their homes, family if necessary, countries, their comfort, their former religions, their friends, their careers, their inheritance, <laughs> their wealth, whatever. There are a lot of flesh barriers that keep people from wholeheartedly following the Lord Jesus, aren't there? So if he tested people, I don't think it was wrong for Naomi to give them, the girls, this faithfulness test. And she does re express her remorse over having... Um, caused her daughters-in-law <laughs> so much sorrow. I can't help it. You know, I'm sitting there in front of my computer. I have to have some fun. <laughs> she said, Frank will come in and he'll say, why are you laughing? I'll say, you got to look at this picture. He goes, oh, no. <laughs> she said, she said to her daughters-in-law, it grieves me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then we find the women kissing, you know, and they're weeping. They really did love each other, and, um, you know, they're just really sad about all this. But then comes the defining moment of decision and division. Because Orpah chose the familiar path. Ruth chose the faith path. Orpah went back unto her people and unto her gods, it says in verses 14 and 15. And you know what? We never hear of her again, do we? Nope. However, Ruth clave unto her mother-in-law, and she is an example of God's grace at work on her soul. She made a choice that not only changed her earthly life, from great sorrow and exceeding poverty to wonderful joy and great wealth, because Boaz was wealthy, but it changed her eternal destiny. Naomi could not have hoped to have heard a better declaration of devotion and faith in God than what she then heard in Ruth's next words to her. These words are a classic jewel in scripture, and they have been put to many songs and sung at many weddings. Ruth said, in answer to the faithfulness test, 
<laughs> she said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and this is the best part, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. And then she said, the Lord, which is Yahweh, do so to me, and more also, if aught but death, part thee and me. How would you like a daughter-in-law like that? That's pretty good, isn't it? Ruth would hear no further discussion on this topic. She wanted no more enticements, no more arguments from Naomi about what she needed to do, Ruth, herself, for her own potential good, because her mind was made up. This girl has a strong will. She also is living up to her name because she is a compassionate friend. Even if the road ahead was going to be difficult for these two widow women, Ruth was committed to remain at her mother-in-law's side. We need to be this committed when it comes to following the Lord, don't we? Like Ruth? Uh, where he leads, we must follow. No turning back. No turning back. And we also note that she didn't lay down any conditions. Ruth did not say to Naomi, well, I'll continue with you as long as we get to stay in really nice hotels <laughs> with a pool. You know, if we just have to stay in a tent, mm, not quite so sure. She didn't say, well, I'll stay with you until... Mr. Prince Charming comes along, and then it's bye-bye mother-in-law. She didn't lay down any conditions. She even said that she would clave to her until she died, and then she even wanted to be buried. She wasn't even going to leave Naomi alone in, in the ground. When she died, she wanted to be buried with her. Oh, that is wonderful. And then Ruth gave the supreme reason for her decision. She wanted Naomi's people to be her people. She wanted Naomi's God to be her God. This is a story of the conversion of a Gentile woman who had gods like Chemosh. She was willing to make a total break from Moab and from Moab's false gods. Uh, she wanted to be a follower of Yahweh, the true God, the God of Israel. She wanted to be grafted onto the true vine of Israel. I think I need to go ahead one. Even though born a Gentile and raised in idolatry, she sought to know the only true God of Israel. Somehow, even through Naomi's great sorrows, she, Ruth obviously witnessed enough faith in Naomi that she, she, must, she wanted to know her God. There was something, even though we look at Naomi and maybe criticize her for some of the things she's going to say next, where she blames God for everything, but she obviously had a testimony, didn't she? Maybe when she was at the gravesides of her husband and her two sons, there was still a hope within her that Ruth didn't see in the pagan people. You know? There was something. And when, when they're kissing each other and, and, and crying, obviously these two daughters-in-law, even though Orpah left, they loved her. And she, she must have exhibited unusual love and kindness toward them even though she must not have been too thrilled that her sons married Moabite women. 
and yet she overcame it. So Naomi did have a strong testimony for her daughter-in-law. Actually, what we have in Ruth's decision is a decisive moment in world history. Do you know there were all kinds of things going on in the world at this time? There were big things happening. I think it was a Trojan time of the Trojan War, and there were big things happening in Egypt with Ramses III or something, and uh, the Chinese dynasty, something was going on there, and there was something down in South America. Big, big world events. And yet, this is when Ruth says to her mother-in-law, I will go with you. That was a defining moment in world history. Think about that. That is amazing. One little Moabite girl says, I will. And we see the providence of God at work through her decision. If Ruth had chosen to go back to her family and even maybe to her gods in Moab, rather than go with Naomi to Bethlehem and trust in Yahweh, the Magi from the east would not have seen the star in the sky that led them to where? To Bethlehem to see the king of the Jews. The Bethlehem shepherds never would have been visited by angels announcing the birth of the Christ child. But because Ruth said to Naomi, I will go, she became the wife of Boaz. They had a son named Obed, who became the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David which is why Bethlehem, he was born in Bethlehem, which is why Bethlehem is called the city of David. And of course, both Mary and Joseph descended from the line of King David. Mary descended from David through his son Nathan, which was the bloodline of King David. Joseph descended from King David through Solomon, the kingly line of David. And that is why Mary and Joseph both had to leave Nazareth in Galilee to go down to Bethlehem, house of bread, in Judea, praise, in order to register for the tax census. You get it? That's the providence of God at work in one woman's decision. Nobody in the rest of the planet had ever heard of this girl named Ruth. But God knew all about it. She became an ancestress to the Lord Jesus Christ. He works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? Don't ever think your decision doesn't matter. My little granddaughter, I shared this yesterday, 10-year-old, one of my granddaughters, um, 10 years old, she asked me last week, she said, um, now, Grandma, if you had never met Grandpa, then who would be my grandparents? And I said, honey, you wouldn't be here. You gotta be kidding. <laughs> and she's too young for me to explain it, so I did not explain it. All right, the firmness of, uh, of Ruth's decision 
brought Naomi to silence. She stopped, you know, trying to persuade her. Uh, it says, when she saw that Ruth was steadfastly minded, this girl, strong-willed, just like Jesus, you know, set his mind like Flint to go to Jerusalem where he knew he'd be crucified. She was steadfastly minded. She was going to go with her mother-in-law. And so Naomi stopped speaking about it. So the two returned to Bethlehem. Nothing is said in the narrative about their trip. It was probably only about 60 miles from, Bethlehem, um, from Moab back to Bethlehem. And so all it says in verse 19 is the two went until they came to Bethlehem. Now the pair did not enter Bethlehem without notice. That was a very small town when Jesus was born there. Just a little village. I have been to Bethlehem. When I was there, it wasn't that big either. But can you imagine way back in the time of the judges, it was just a tiny, tiny little town. So their arrival was like, Headline newspaper, you know, Naomi has returned. It was the big talk of the time. The people were so happy because now they had something to talk about. <laughs> it says, look, you think I'm exaggerating? Verse 19, all the city was moved about them. That means they were stirred up. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. The women said we can finally gossip about something. Then they looked at Naomi and they said, is this Naomi? <gasps> Oh, my goodness, you see what disobedience will bring you? Do you see how gray her hair has become? <gasps> Look at those crow's feet. My, 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 has she aged? And nobody's with, I mean, who's that girl with her? She, um, they both are obviously widows. They're dressed in black. They're poor. You know, the women were so excited to have something to talk about. But Naomi, um, you know, she had gone out full. But here she is with no men, obviously, sure, by the way she's dressed, not with yellow like that picture, but probably all in black. It's obvious she is uh, now a widow, and they're looking, where are her sons? They're not with her. And her response, Naomi's response to this inquisitive crowd was very negative. She said to them, call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath delivered me, dealt with me very bitterly. That's in verse 20. She no longer wanted to be called Naomi because things were no longer pleasant with her. She wanted to be called Mara because Mara means what? Bitter, bitter. Moab had proven to be a very bitter experience for her. And she blamed it on the Almighty. And she did the same thing in her next sentence when she said, I went out full, but the Lord hath brought me back home again empty. Huh. You know, that's not... Well, he did, but she's certainly blaming. You know what she said altogether? She said, the Lord hath brought me home empty. The Lord hath testified against me. The Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. The Almighty hath afflicted me. That sounds like a lot of bitterness and blame to me. It reminds me of the prodigal son who took his inheritance and went into a far country where he lived the life of the world and then returned home empty, completely empty. Right? But at least his father ran out to him and I, he repented. Um, Naomi, you know, she's feeling pretty bad, but she does blame the Lord. The people of Bethlehem who greeted her had remained behind. They hadn't left to go to another country, and they're obviously a lot better off than she was. But at least she does admit that it was the Lord who did bring her back, finally. She'd stayed away too long, but now she's back. And then she did confess it was the Almighty who had afflicted her. Afflicted means broken her, and this is true. He had broken her. 
He had broken many things in her life. He broke her will. He broke her dependence on her husband and her sons and her wealth. He broke perhaps her pride so that she finally did come back to face family and friends. Um, he even broke up her attempt to get Ruth to stay behind in Moab. She told the people of Bethlehem that she had returned empty, but you know what the truth of the matter is? She returned far more full than when she had left because who was at her side? Ruth. Later on, the Bethlehem women will tell Naomi that Ruth was more valuable than seven sons. Well, I guess if you had a series of puny pining sons, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I can't help myself. I'm sorry. Well, it was again, it was again a work of God's providence that when the two women arrived in Bethlehem, there's nothing that's just happenstance. There's nothing that's just coincidence. When they arrived, what time of the year was it? The beginning of the barley harvest. That's in verse 22. The good news that Naomi had heard about the Lord blessing Israel with bread was true. The fields were ripe for harvesting. Harvest time was a very, very joyous time in Israel and in most countries back then and probably still today. Naomi had found sorrow in Moab, but joy was soon to come her way in Bethlehem. In fact, joy would come to the whole world because Naomi returned to Bethlehem with Ruth. You see, the night Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the angel proclaimed, Behold, I bring you tidings of what? Great joy. Because Naomi went back to Bethlehem, an old Jewish woman, and she brought with her Ruth. Because of that, joy came to the whole world. And you have joy in your heart if you know the one born in Bethlehem, right? God's providence. Now let's move on to fields and feet. <laughs> Ruth almost immediately, as soon as they get settled, probably Naomi's old house is there, you know, and so they go to the house, and uh, immediately after they settle in, which probably didn't take much time because it came back empty, but Ruth offers to go into the fields in order to glean from the harvest. It was harvest time. Spring harvest was barley. It was her suggestion. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. They were poor. They needed food, so she volunteered to be the breadwinner. Gleaning was not easy work. It was tiring, back-breaking work. Gleaners went behind the reapers to pick up stalks of grain from the ground that the reapers missed <clears throat> or that they dropped. And uh, they would, the, the gleaners would go into the corners of the field to get whatever leftovers had not been cut and bound into bundles. Ruth was not too lazy. Actually, she isn't lazy at all. She wasn't lazy, nor was she too proud to do such humble work. She was going to be true to her word, to her promise, to cleave to her mother-in-law, to take care of her mother-in-law in good times and bad times. Gleaning in the fields for the poor and the stranger, meaning the foreigner, 
and the widow and the orphan was part of God's provision in the Mosaic law. And it was called the gleaning law or the welfare law. It was a good law um, because people, even if they were poor, if they could work, they could go out and get their own grain, you know, to feed themselves. That's a good, you know, instead of just giving people things, even if they can work, you just give it to them for free, they lose their self-esteem and then they become dependent on everyone else. I mean, this is, of course, this is a great law because God made it up. It's called the gleaning law. Well, in verse 7 of chapter 2, we read that Ruth, Ruth asked permission to glean. She said, I pray you. Her integrity was such, this is when she went out into the field and she asked whoever she came across, I pray you, please, please, um, let me work. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If your kids came to you, your grandchildren, please, Grandma, is there something I can, can I vacuum your house? Please let me, and I don't want any compensation. <laughs> uh, yeah, dream on. <laughs> <laughs> but her integrity was such that she did not presume entitlement to glean just because it was lawful. She told Naomi that she was going to seek permission from someone, and here's her words, in whose sight I shall find grace. That's in verse 2. And, of course, as the Lord would have it, <laughs> um, because he providentially orchestrated this entire thing, she found work in part of a field that belonged to Boaz. And the first thing we read about him is that he was a mighty, what does his name mean? Strength. He was a mighty man of wealth. Oh, there you go. <laughs> if you're going to meet a guy, he might as well be rich. <laughs> a mighty man of wealth. And he was of the family of Elimelech. Important. So, the story introduces us to the third main character, Boaz, strength. He not only had strength of money, that's not important, I was just teasing, but he had, more importantly, strength of character, and he had strength of faith. He was also strong in potential because he qualified to be the kinsman redeemer for both Naomi and for Ruth. If willing... He could redeem Elimelech's property for Naomi, and he could also fulfill the Leveret marriage law and marry Ruth to preserve the name of Malon. <laughs> Puny. <laughs> I think it's, it's kind of interesting to me that her first husband was named Puny and her second husband was named Strength. There's got to be a lesson in that one, right? <laughs> The Leveret marriage law was that if a husband died without children, his, dead, his brother, his living brother, was to take his widow, the dead guy's widow, and marry her and raise up a name for the dead brother. I don't know if you got that, but that was a law, Leveret marriage law. And Boaz, because Naomi had no more sons, right? So Boaz is around the nearest, well, he's almost the nearest kin, so he could fulfill the Leveret marriage law Mary, Ruth, raise up a child to continue on Puny's name. <laughs> now, <laughs> strong Boaz was kind, and he was very well respected by those who worked as reapers in his field. 
He was attentive to his harvest because he would go out there, you know, and inspect the field. And uh, he greeted his reapers when he went out to the field. He said this, this is in verse 4, The Lord be with you. To which they answered him back, saying, The Lord bless thee. Can you imagine going to your workplace and walking in and saying to all your co-workers, The Lord be with you. And they all smile and say, The Lord bless you too. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Used to be that way. Not anymore. So as Boaz was looking things over, he noticed Ruth. There she is over there. And he says, whose damsel is this? Now I know when you read all these commentaries and everybody, they say, oh, Ruth was so beautiful that he goes, whoa, whose damsel is this? But there's never one word said about her beauty, at least not her outward beauty. It's not like she was the beauty queen Esther was. We're never given a description. Her beauty, I believe, she probably was beautiful on the outside, but her beauty on the outside was because she was so beautiful on the inside. He sees her. He knows she's, he's never seen her before. And so he says, who's damsel? Damsel means young woman. And then the man who identified Ruth to Boaz said she was the Moabitess who had returned with Naomi. <clears throat> and then this man, this reaper, gave uh, Ruth a very good report card, a work ethic report card. And this is so important. I stress this with young people especially. Work. Don't ever think that people aren't watching you at work because they are. I know all of you have been in lines at the cash register and you get there and the one waiting on you never even speaks to you, doesn't look you in the eyes, looks at the watch and says, it's almost time for my break, can't wait. And then she's talking to somebody next to her and they're having a conversation. It's like you don't exist. And it's complaining about the job. I mean, you hear all kinds of, have a good work ethic. It made all the difference in the world. Ruth, Boaz would not have been interested in Ruth if she was lazy. She gets an excellent report card from the guy who's watching her. He notices. He notices things. He noticed that she had been working hard since early morning and had only taken a very short break. That's what it says in verses 6 and 7. If she had been lazy and slothful and complaining, Boaz really would not have been interested. He would not, and we wouldn't be reading a book named after her today. If you're going to work, young people, or tell this to your children, your grandchildren, Get there early. You know, there's nothing wrong with getting there 10, 5, 10 minutes early at work and staying late and asking your boss, is there anything else I can do to help? People will take notice. And you will, and today, in today's world, you'll stand out, really stand out. <laughs> that is so important. I, one thing I do cannot stand is laziness. And I am so glad that my mother and father instilled in me a strong work ethic. Work hard. Work till you can't work anymore, and then if you're even on your bed, you know, you still can work by praying, interceding. Ruth had a great example. All right, and she would not have been the great, the grandmother, great-grandmother, I think it was. Yeah, great-grandmother of King David if she didn't have a good work ethic. Okay, enough about that. After hearing the good report, Boaz goes over to her, and he gives her some direction about where not to glean and how to stay safe. He told her not to glean in anyone else's field, but to remain in his. 
like the Lord Jesus, he wanted to bless her and bring joy into her heavy-laden life. He told her to keep her eyes on the field where the maidens were reaping because he was going to tell those maidens to leave extra gleanings behind. Another thing he promised her was water for her thirst. If she gleaned in his fields, her thirst would always be satisfied. And who does that remind you of? Of course, Jesus, who invited the thirsty to come unto him and drink. Furthermore, Boaz protected Ruth from anything immoral happening to her. He commanded the young men harvesters to leave her alone. And he made sure, therefore, that she would be free of fear and also that she would be full of fruit. <laughs> he assured her that she would have both his provision and his protection, and it was just too good to be true. Remember how she said she wanted to find someone who would have grace on her? So when she hears all this, it tells us in verse 37, she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said to Boaz, why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me? 10, verse 10, I'm sorry. She says, why have you found knowledge, taken knowledge of me seeing I am a stranger? She says that several times to him. Did you not feel like this when you were first introduced to Boaz and to Christ? I just thought it was too good to be true. Why me? Why grace on me? Why? A, I'm a stranger, you know, but you've taken me in. As a Moabitess, she knew that she had no rights to claim the blessings God decreed for Israel. And she was humble, wasn't she? Humble and thankful and hardworking. And yet Boaz had reached out to her with grace, so she, she, she was just amazed. Boaz, notice, was no respecter of persons. She was a Moabitess. He didn't shun her. He went over to her and he extended his grace. He even went above what was expected. And then he praised her for another excellent report card. This girl had gotten another report card she didn't know about, but he had heard about her from the people of Bethlehem. The people of Bethlehem, you know, they talked about her. And he had learned that Naomi's um, Moabite daughter-in-law was a true and compassionate friend to her. He knew that Ruth had left everything behind in order to um, come to the land of uh, nativ her nativity. Ruth, yeah, is that in verse 11? To thy nativity. Um, had left everything behind in the land of her nativity to dwell with a people she didn't know. And I just thought, I couldn't help when I saw that word nativity, I just thought it was interesting that the word nativity is used here in the text by a man, an uh, ancestor of Jesus Christ, who would be born in Bethlehem, and we always talk about the nativity, right? So I just think that's really interesting that that word is found here. Ruth really was kind of like Abraham, wasn't she? You know, Abraham started out as a Gentile, just like Ruth. He was from Ur of the Chaldees, which is like modern-day Iran. And yet he also left everything behind to obey God's leading and go to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. Well, the other thing Boaz had heard about Ruth was that 
um, she had forsaken the pagan gods of Moab in order to come under the wings of the Lord God of Israel. He wouldn't have been interested in her if she was a pagan worshiper. And then Boaz interceded for her in prayer. He prayed to the Lord on Ruth's behalf. He uh, asked the Lord to recompense her work and to give her a full reward, verse 12. Now, he didn't know it at the time, but he was actually going to be the one that the Lord would use to recompense Ruth for her sacrifice and for her kindness to Naomi, for her faith in God, for her good work ethic, and for her godliness. Ruth was polite. She was humble as she thanked Boaz again for comforting her and uh, with his you know, promised umbrella of protection and for being friendly to her, even though she was not an Israelite. And then he asked her on a date. I mean, that didn't take long, did it? <laughs> he, not really, he, but he does ask her to join him for dinner. Again, isn't this so much like Christ, who invites Jew or Gentile to come and dine at his table to sup with him? When Ruth accepted his offer, do you know what Boaz did? He, he sat her, he placed her with his paid Jewish reapers. Now, gleaners did not have that kind of status, especially a Moabite, you know, a Gentile, to come sit at his table with his reapers, and yet he sits her at that table, and then he breaks a piece of bread and dips it in wine vinegar and hands it to her. If that doesn't sound like our Lord, I don't know what does. He gave it personally to her with some parched corn, and she ate until she was satisfied. In fact, she had so much left over, she took it to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Boaz then instructed his reapers um, on things that would even further benefit Ruth. He told the young men to let her glean even from the sheaves, you know, that were already bound. Let her go over there and even pull some. Tell her. She can even pull some out of the bound sheaves. And do not reproach her for it. He says that twice. In fact, he tells them to purposely let some of the stalks of grain fall on the ground. Purposely drop them. And that is called handfuls of purpose. So that there would be more grain put in her path to make her gleaning even more productive. Well, with this added benefit, Ruth could have quit early. She could have looked at her watch and said, wow, I've got so much already, I think I'll just go home. Three o'clock, I don't have to work a full day. But she didn't do that. It tells us in verse 17, she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she even beat out what she had gleaned. She beat the stalks to separate the stalks from the grain. Even though she worked all day from early morning, only took a short lunch break and then had lunch with Boaz, our dinner. But she finished the job. That's another good thing for work ethic, right? Finish the job. Don't quit in the middle and say, not, and don't ever go back to it. Always, I stress that with my children, you always finish what you start. 
And I used to make them stay up sometimes all night until they finished what they started. My dad taught me that. Anyway, she wasn't slothful. And when she returned to Naomi, she had about an ephah of barley. That is about 20 to 25 pounds of grain. That is a lot. It was enough to feed her and her mother-in-law for days, days. Naomi must have been at home fretting. I'm almost done. She must have been wondering what was happening with Ruth. <clears throat> had she found a field to work in? Was she treated well? Would she get enough food from the gleaning uh, to feed them? Or would the harvesters leave her very little because she was a Moabitess? And then when it started to get late into the evening, Naomi must have really fretted um, because she probably worried about her. What about some of those men? Would they take advantage of her? But when Ruth came home with her bushel of grain, Naomi said, hallelujah. She praised the man who owned the field. And obviously, I mean, she knew the minute she saw that much grain, she knew whoever's field it was, he had taken notice of Ruth. She said, blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. That's in verse 19. And then... When Ruth told her everything that had happened because of the kind-hearted man named Boaz, <laughs> Naomi must have done a happy dance. <laughs> she recognized immediately that the Lord was involved in Ruth's abundantly successful day of gleaning. And then she, Naomi, excitedly shared with Ruth that Boaz was near of kin unto us, one of our kinsmen. And the Hebrew word for kin is, guess what, goel. In other words, he is kinsman, potential kinsman, redeemer material. He was in that position by way of his blood relationship um, to Elimelech. So he could also fulfill the responsibility of the Leveret marriage law and marry Ruth. In other words, he could redeem Naomi, the land to Naomi, and he could redeem Ruth. And it was at this news that Ruth then told Naomi something else that Boaz had shared with her. Boaz had told Ruth he wanted her to stay with his reapers until the end of the harvest. See that in verse 21? Now they're in the spring barley harvest, but he wants her to stay through the whole summer harvest. The next harvest would be the wheat harvest. It was in summer. That gives us a little bit more insight into the interest Boaz had in Ruth. It seems like he's already beginning to think about romance and redemption. So Naomi saw the potential and was quick to tell Ruth some good motherly advice. Don't let the opportunity pass by. She was to follow the command of Boaz and stay in his field and work with him until the end of both the barley spring harvest and the wheat summer harvest. And she did. Ruth did. She was submissive to Boaz's will, and she was uh, submissive to her mother-in-law's will. She was steadfast in her work. She stayed taking care of Naomi. And what does obedience bring with it? Blessings. Blessings always follow obedience. 
and that is likewise the case with Ruth. So when we come back after we have our lunch break, we'll continue with um, this story, and then we'll get into the prophetic part about it. So let's just ask the Lord's blessing. On the food, Father, thank you so much. We praise you for your providential orchestration of all things in life, even including death, because you providentially even used the deaths of Elimelech and Malon and Killian to produce your plans and purposes. There is absolutely nothing on earth, even Satan, us, nothing that can hinder your work. So may we align ourselves to your will, to seek to know your will through your word and through the examples of real people in past times who, who did or did not obey you. May we learn from them. There's so much that you teach us in, in your word, and it is for our good. And I pray we have ears to hear and that we're not just hearers, but we're also doers. And we thank you, Lord, for every lady. Thank you for the food that you've provided to nourish our bodies. And may you refresh us and help us prepare our minds for the next session in which we'll look at the prophetic part of this amazing book. And we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank